Bible, we're going to go to two passages. Uh, passages we've looked at before in uh, a couple of my favorite passages, actually. That's why we've probably looked at them before. Uh, but uh, many of you know that for the last few years, uh, the Lord has been stirring a lot in my heart uh, for the Church of Jesus Christ and how weak uh, ecclesiology is. Ecclesiology is just a big fancy word that means the study of the church. Uh, and uh, in the ecclesiology, the theology of the church is very, very weak around the world in this day. And I think that God is reclaiming uh, that uh, and calling Christians, Christian leaders to start to understand more clearly and fully uh, what the church is, who the church is, and what we're called to be and do. Um, and so uh, uh, that's why you get these passages frequently. First of all, we'll go to Acts chapter 2. Uh, this is picking up what happened right after the day of Pentecost. How did they respond when you know 3,000 people were filled with the Spirit, uh, were baptized, uh, their families started coming and worshiping together? You know What were they doing uh, in those days? And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. And then over to Revelation. Uh, this is an exclamation of worship to Jesus and why Jesus was worthy to open the scroll. And they sang a new song saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals. For you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. May God bless to us these readings from his holy word. Now, I have to say ahead that my Chinese isn't very good. Uh, and so there's a, a Chinese name that I think I have the pronunciation right. But if you uh, happen to be a Chinese speaker and after today want to school me on the proper way of pronouncing this name, I would appreciate it. Uh, and the name is Shaois, Shaois, or Shaois. But I think Shaois is uh, the way that you pronounce the name. Uh, it's a teenage girl's name, actually, in China. And Shaois is an incredibly popular teenager. Uh, over uh, uh, 660 million people have connected with this teenager uh, in the last, since 2014. Uh, she is quite amazing. In fact, uh, Shaois has this burning desire to
to be friends with everyone. Uh, and she has an, an amazing capacity to make lots of friends. Uh, there are a lot of people who love communicating with her and talking with her and hearing from her. Uh, and it's, it's really quite exciting. I mean, she can tell jokes. Uh, she writes original poetry. She composes and she sings songs. Uh, she can read stories. She'll play games with you and, and uh, even more things. The only thing about Shaois is that she's not a human being. Shaois is a chatbot that was created by Microsoft. And so Shaois is extremely popular, but her personality was modeled on that uh, as a teenage girl. Now, Shaois is so popular, uh, she's popular because she's there 24 7. She's there as a good friend with the power to listen. Uh, she wants to be people's friend. Uh, this chatbot, uh, uh, a form of AI, artificial intelligent, uh, intelligent, <laughs> intelligence, uh, is, uh, is intended to be as much a companion as a personal assistant. Uh, since launching in China in May 2014, Xiaois has had more than 30 billion conversations with more than 660 million human users around the world. Uh, there are multiple ways to interact with Xiaois, uh, but most people interact with her by text message. Um, now, according to Microsoft, the primary goal of a social chatbot like this is to be a virtual companion to the people who, who, who use her. Um, they, they, she tries to establish an emotional connection with the users, and doing so, uh, social chatbots actually learn to understand the users better and better, uh, and the, as they do so, they're able to help the users more and more over time. The more you interact, the more the chatbot learns you, just kind of like in a relationship. The more you talk, the, the more you, you learn uh, about one another. Now, Shaois will check up on you if, uh, whether you've reached home after a night out. Uh, she'll find out how you're, how you're faring after a breakup. Uh, or uh, she can keep tabs on you if you lose your job. Some people are actually preferring their interactions with Shaois over interactions with other human beings. It's really quite extraordinary. Um, but actually, it's not terribly surprising because for quite a long time, companies have been trying to connect with people uh, using uh, algorithms and computer programs to do so. Uh, we don't often think of this, but online advertising, uh, internet searches, uh, if you ask a question on the internet, uh, if you wanna invest in stocks, and some stock investing is done automatically. Uh, all these things and many others are based on various algorithms that have been developed. We don't realize how much of our day-to-day -day lives, especially anything we do on the internet, is governed by algorithms that someone has written.
And these algorithms are starting to learn. And as artificial intelligence is growing and growing and growing, they're learning and learning more and more and more. And the exponential increase in the power of computing, especially if you've not heard of this, you can look it up, uh, quantum computing, uh, take a look at that online. With the development of quantum computing, it means that by 2030, it is possible for us as human beings to develop a computer that has as much processing power as the human brain. In other words, we can create a lifelike AI that could conceivably interact with us as if the AI itself was a human being. And that really raises some important questions like, can we actually digitize humanity? Is it possible to reduce us to a simple AI system? Would that AI be human if it had all our computing capacity and the, the ability to reason, the ability to share emotions? back. Sorry, we had a little bit of a connection hitch. Yeah. And with COVID-19, uh, the lockdown has actually forced churches to start asking a lot of questions like this, because it's forced churches to go online. Uh, many, if not most churches in places like the UK, have been streaming their services online. Tens of thousands have gone online now using tools like we use, like Zoom or YouTube Live or Facebook Live or any other number of other resources, uh, they've gone online. And so the question comes, can we digitize the Christian faith? Is it possible for us even to digitize the church? I mean, the pandemic has exposed a lot of faulty thinking uh, and many faulty notions about church all of which are unbiblical. Now, some of these notions have been what we call reductionistic. In other words, they want to see what they can reduce church to. And for some people, they've tried to reduce church to maybe just the preaching. So you, you watch a preacher online and, and therefore you've churched. Uh, or it's the music. You watch a music team online. Uh, or they reduce it to the large group experience. So we haven't had church because we can't gather together in large groups. Some people have tried to reduce church to the sacred building. Uh, some have reduced it to private prayer. Uh, I, for one, have not been excited about opening churches for private prayer because that is a fundamental misunderstanding of what the church is. And I'm not talking about the building in that context. Uh, some people call it simply a place of solace, comfort, and encouragement. Uh, for some, it's a social service. Uh, for many, they've tried to reduce church to something we do. It's all about what we do. Uh, at the same time, the virus has exposed a lot of materialistic or worldly distortions of church. Um, the idea that church somehow requires a building or a theater uh, that church requires a professional staff or a big worship team. Uh, that church requires a lot of high quality programs going on all the time. 
the church requires specialized ministry like children's ministry, youth ministry, women's ministry, men's ministry, or that church requires having big events uh, or requires some kind of hierarchy, a denomination or something like that, or that church requires having a lot of people gathered in one place. All of these can be kind of materialistic and sometimes even worldly notions of church. But we've been talking here the last few weeks about becoming God's agent of disruption as the church. I mean, that's what this is. It's the church as God's agent of disruption. We are God's agent of disruption. I believe that that's God's call on City Temple. Uh, But we need to understand how to become authentically church in a digital age. What is the non-materialistic, irreducible notion of the church of Jesus Christ? What cannot be digitized about our life together as church? That's what I want to look at. And I want to look at that in terms of four different areas. The first one is who we are as church. Who we are as church. And this comes from Revelation chapter 5, the passage I read. And I'd like to suggest this. The church is the lived corporate reality of redeemed people together in Christ Jesus as a kingdom and priest to the one God, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, who are training to reign on the earth. Let me read that again. Church is the lived corporate reality. We're living it out. It's corporate. It's not an individualistic thing. It's a reality of redeemed people together in Christ Jesus uh, as a kingdom, expanding God's kingdom, God's rulership on the earth, and priests to our God who worship God and also represent God to people. That's what that means. Uh, uh, To the one God, and we are training to reign on this earth. That's our destiny, to rule, to reign as representatives of God's kingdom. That's who we are. This means that church is not an army. It's not a hospital. It's not a worship service. It's not a building. It's not a charity. Although there are some ways that we're like an army, some ways we're like a hospital, some ways that uh, we are like a gathered worship service. Uh, We meet in buildings. uh, We can form charities. But these things are not at the heart of who we are. We are together a lived corporate reality of redeemed people together in Christ Jesus, living as the kingdom of God, priests to our God, who are learning to reign on this earth. And that's the core of who we are. Church is not individual. It's corporate. It has to be corporate. It has to be lived out. It's not something we watch, and it's certainly not something we do. However, that leads us to the second thing. What do we do as church? What we do as church? We need to look at that. What are the core activities for us as church? You know, if you don't have a worship team, do you have a church? Uh, if you are uh, a not, um, uh, if you don't have any kind of teaching, is it a church? If you don't have fellowship, is it a church? You know, what, what are the core things we do? Well, that's where Acts chapter 2 comes in very handy. And what we learn there is what we do, we devote ourselves to Jesus 
and to one another as we engage in core activities. And it involves our devotion first to Jesus and to one another. If we're not devoted to Jesus and we're not devoted to one another, it doesn't matter what we do. It's like what Paul was saying there in 1 Corinthians 13. You know, if, if, if I preach but I don't have love, I'm not worth anything. Uh, and love has to be lived out. It's not just a feeling, it's something that we live. So we devote ourselves uh, together to one another and to Jesus Christ as we engage in certain things. First, it's the apostles' teaching. Now, by apostles' teaching, it's not the transmission of information. That is not what the word teaching in the New Testament means. In fact, it almost never means the transmission of information in the New Testament. So whenever you read teaching in the New Testament, it's not about information passing on. It's not something you can go to Google and uh, look it up and get the information and say, oh yeah, okay, I've got the information now. Um, you know, then, then I can go on. Uh, I remember uh, some time ago, I was talking to somebody about freedom in Christ, um, uh, not around uh, at the moment, and, and, uh, and they were talking about it, and clearly this person had some issues in their lives, and I suggested that maybe they should do the, Christ, the Freedom in Christ discipleship course. And they said, well, you know, uh, yeah, I've already done that. And I wanted to say, kind of be rude to them. I, I'm, you know me, I'm, I'm generally a gentle giant. I wanted to look at them and say, well, then why don't you live it out? And that's teaching. In the Bible, it's not communicating content, but it's practicing obedience with one another. Practicing obedience. You learn, and then you obey, and then you can say, I've been taught. If you're not obeying, you've not been taught. If you're not doing, then you don't know. Uh, that's why I like my state's motto, show me. You know, it's show me state, show me. Don't tell me what you do, what you believe. Show me, live it out. And that's the apostles' teaching. You cannot practice obedience in isolation from others. Uh, it's a bit like uh, playing baseball. I know many of you don't like baseball, even though it's, it's my favorite sport. Uh, but in my mind, I know what it means to take a bat and hit a ball and hit it over the fence uh, for a home run. And I tell you, 100% of the time, in my mind, I can swing that bat, hit the ball, and go over the fence. 100% of the time in my mind. But do you know how much I can do that in actuality? Zero. I'm just, just not capable. Just not capable. In my mind, I can run a marathon. How many marathons have I run? Zero. In my mind, I could be a Premier League goalie. I, I could keep goal. I, I would be a dynamite goal. I'm tall, man. Uh, I, I, would, I would go, Rah! and scare the, the, the Dickens out of, uh, out of those guys. I mean, they would be terrified of me in my mind. But I doubt that I could block a single goal in actuality. You get my point here. Uh, you cannot practice obedience without face-to-face -face interaction with people, no matter how much information you have in your mind. Now, the second thing here is fellowship. 
Now, fellowship, the core of fellowship is sharing, uh, actual sharing. Now, there's some sharing that we can do online. We could share details about our lives. Uh, we can share a little bit about who we are. But you know what I've learned? My deepest interactions online have been with people that I've had deep sharing with before we got online. And my weakest interactions online have been with people that I didn't meet before we were in lockdown and I hadn't interacted with before we were in lockdown. You see, to have real fellowship with people requires that we are present with them. We share our lives. We share our resources. Now, I could share some of my bank account with you online, but I really couldn't share my time with you and my energy with you in the same way online. So fellowship is something that requires our presence as well to really experience the depths of it. And then there's the third thing that they mention here, the breaking of bread. The breaking of bread. And the breaking of bread functions in two ways. Uh, and that's pretty consistent throughout all of Luke's writing. Uh, you can see this uh, on, the, on the road to Emmaus when Jesus was there with the two, two disciples and they stopped and they invited him in uh, and they had a meal together, and then Jesus broke bread, and it was at that point that they recognized him. Uh, that always has a twofold meaning. One means breaking bread. In other words, you eat together. Uh, I'm really thankful uh, the last few weeks, not to provoke you to jealousy, uh, but I've been able to have lunch with the residential community. And that's really a, been a, a deep, deep blessing for me uh, and for Karen uh, and the food has been good, which has been like a double blessing. And we haven't died, which is a triple blessing. So it's all good uh, with, with all of that. Uh, it's, we've, had a, we've had a good time. But we broke bread together. But the second meaning of this is the Lord's Supper. And biblically, the Lord's Supper is at the heart of Christian worship. It's the fundamental thing that Jesus told us to do when we gather together to remember him, to reenact the reality that he died on the cross, breaking his body and shedding his blood there for us. The Lord's Supper is our core act of worship. And even though we've enjoyed doing the Lord's Supper online, we all know it's not been the same, right? We need to be present with one another in order to share the Lord's Supper. So we've got uh, devoting ourselves to the apostles' teaching, to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to the prayers. Now, prayers here were regular appointed times to come together and pray. And the word prayer would include what we all normally call worship, meaning the music we sing in worship. When the, the new song, hopefully you enjoyed it, Awe and Wonder, uh, that was a prayer. It was an act of worship, but it was a prayer. And so prayers involve both spoken prayers and sung prayers. Uh, uh, and so that, that includes all of those things. Uh, but there's a dynamic here that we found. You can't fully digitize that. It's not about watching it, but it's about participating in it. You can't watch people pray. You need to pray for it to be prayer. I don't pray by watching you pray. I pray by praying. And so we need 
some dynamic of being together. So those are things that we do together as a church. Now, on top of this, we always need to understand that we do these things in the power of the Holy Spirit. It's not about us doing it by ourselves. It's about the Holy Spirit enabling us to do this together. And it also involves the miraculous. I think we've entered a season, frankly, where the church of Jesus Christ needs to reclaim the miraculous, miracles, signs and wonders, healings and things, all in the power of the Holy Spirit. And it's not going to be some big leader up at the front who has some great anointed gift of God who is doing the healing and the miracles. It's going to be the Spirit of God working through the people of God as they meet together. And each Christian needs to start expecting that God will work through you to heal, to, to, to do a miracles, to give you information, knowledge, wisdom, whatever you need to minister to people and share Jesus with people. Because the Spirit wants to work through you. And we need to see that when we come together. When we come together and people see the Spirit of God working through all of us, not just some guy who's built up his brand at the front and you know who has a reputation of doing these things, but some normal people like all of us. Yeah, we're all normal, I know. That's when people are going to pay attention. That's when people will know it's not about hype. And that, by the way, is when God is going to be giving the growth. And that's so important for us to remember. In this, God gives the growth. God gives the growth. So that's what we do as a church. So we've looked at who we are as a church. We've looked at the irreducible things that we do as a church. You cannot take one of those four things away and still really have a church. You can't take away the apostles' teaching and living it out. You can't take away the fellowship. You can't take away the breaking of bread. Uh, and you can't take away the prayers and still have a church. Churches do those things, and they do those things together. And it's time for us to get away from the audience mentality when it comes to church, because biblically, it's they devoted themselves to one another and to Jesus together and that's when God moved. It's one of the reasons why the Spirit of God has not really moved in a lot of places because too many people have been involved in audience, you know, as an audience, worshiping, uh, watching a group of people worship God up front and not really engaging in it themselves. And I think God's going to restore that to the church, to the body of Christ uh, in the years ahead. We're going to see this happen. Now, the third thing is, you know, what does it take to be a church? How do we constitute a church? Um, what, what's the basic requirements for being a church? Uh, do you have to have a building to be a church? Do you have to have a thousand people to be a church? Do you have to have a paid pastor to be a church? Do you have to have a denomination to be a church? How do you constitute a church? And for this one, I'd just like to give some suggestions very quickly. Uh, there's no hard and fast biblical rules here, but I want to give some potentially biblical insights. Historically, in Judaism, it required 10 adults over the age of 13 to constitute a synagogue. They'd call that a minyam, uh, minyan, um, and, uh, and they believed that 10 gathered together 
And normally it was 10 men, uh, but now in many synagogues it's 10 men and women. And I think we as redeemed believers in Jesus, 10 men and women sounds pretty good to me. Uh, There were 10 men and women that were required together to form a representative community of Israel for liturgical purposes. Now this number 10 actually comes from Numbers 14.27 when the faithless spies come back. So you had Joshua and Caleb uh, the 12, uh, and the other 10 spies that went out to spy out the land. And you remember the story, uh, 10 of them came back and said, no, we shouldn't go. And Joshua said, no, let's go. You know, we got God on our side. And the 10 prevailed. And those 10 were referred to as a congregation. Uh, and that's where the number 10 comes in, in, in defining that number. Uh, and there's a belief that as the 10 come together, they pray as one. And whenever 10 were gathered, it was believed that the divine presence was dwelling among them. And this is from Psalm 82, verse 1. So I think, you know, the idea of 10 adults over the age of 13 together as the baseline for church sounds pretty good. Another one, another verse that comes to me is uh, from Ecclesiastes 4.12. And though a man might prevail against one who is alone, two will withstand him, a threefold cord is not quickly broken. So I think of these 10 adults, there needs to be a minimum of three households. Now by households, that, that could be one person living alone. It could be a couple. It could be a family with 32 children. You know, all of these could, could, could count as a household. But I think that there needs to be at least three households together with a minimum of 10 adults really to constitute a church. And I would suggest that biblically, this should be multi-generational. It should include children and adults and people with gray hair and people with no hair uh, and people with dark hair and so on and so forth. Uh, it, you know, uh, that, that should be included. I think the reality in this too is that more and more our children will need to be homeschooled in the faith, just like children are being homeschooled now in many homes. Uh, and this group uh, would need to seek to be, uh, or at least be in heart whenever possible, what we call polycultural. That is, we want people from every language, from every people, from every tribe, from every nation. And that may not be possible in every group of 10, uh, but certainly we should be hungering for that and seeking that and realizing uh, that we need to embody that in our multicultural London. So I think that that maybe is the baseline of what constitutes a church. So we know what we are, who we are as a church. We know what we do as a church. We know that actually a group could be constituted as a church with just 10. I mean, we've seen that with the residential community, by the way, during this time. I mean, having them here in the room with me right now, being able to share life together. uh, Sorry again to provoke you to jealousy on that. Uh, but it really reminds me just the baseline church, and it feels church. It feels like we're together as church. Uh, It's been a powerful illustration to me. So we know what constitutes a church. And then the question is, how are we led as a church? How we are led as church? Well, biblically, there's always a plural leadership. They're normally called elders. Uh, At City Temple, we have four elders currently, myself included with that number. 
And it's important to note that these elders, and they're not above the people. They're not below the people. We need to listen to the words of Jesus here. He said I, in Luke 22, 27, I am among you as one who serves. Leaders are those who are among us leading. You can't have some leader in the church be in his ivory tower, never connecting his life with the life of his people or her people. Uh, that's a distortion of biblical leadership. Jesus gives us the example, and he says, I am among you as one who serves. And that's got to be the heart of any true leader. And leaders lead as shepherds. Paul makes this clear in Acts chapter 20, uh, there in verse 28. He tells the, the elders of the Ephesian church to keep watch and tend, keep watch over and tend the people like shepherds. And so that's, a, that's kind of the model of leading. And then we have, according to Paul in Ephesians 4.11, the fivefold ministry, apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers. But we need to understand that God is going to restructure this. Too much over the last 20, 30 years, apostles have been like super CEOs of companies uh, with other people serving them. And, and, and it's almost like, yeah, you know, I'm starting out as a pastor, but I'm going to work my way to be an apostle. Uh, and some people just kind of jumpstart that and they just call themselves, I'm an apostle uh, and, and this kind of thing. And God is going to deal with that. And he's going to deal with that rather strongly. Because apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers, which we do believe in, uh, they, are gift, they are gifts of God to prepare God's people for works of service and build up the body of Christ. They are not there to be served. They are there to serve. They are not there to advance the, the, uh, the, the CEO concept. They are there to make sure that every manifestation of the church of Jesus Christ uh, no matter if it's 10 people or 10,000 people, functions as God intends them to function. And that's the leadership that God is bringing about in the body of Christ. And we're going to see these four things. They are going to unfold more and more globally, but certainly know this, they are in our hearts here at City Temple. This is part of what God is calling us to do. And this is what part of what God is calling us to be as we look into the future. You know, recently we celebrated VE Day, Victory in Europe Day. Uh, and, uh, and when I was growing up, I read a lot about World War II. A lot of the stories, uh, uh, a, a number of books and things on the history. And one of the things, if you know me, you'll know, uh, one of the things that's always fascinated me are the resistance movements. I always like those movies, you know, about people, you know, hiding in the, in the, in the, in the woods, blowing up train tracks. Okay, I, I, I'm not that violent, but, so please, but understand. Uh, you know, helping uh, ferry people across borders, getting people to safety, uh, operating uh, behind enemy lines, under the radar uh, of the, uh, the evil Nazis. Uh, and, and those things captured my imagination. And I know it was a difficult life, uh, but frankly, uh, it was the resistance movements, uh, and they were organized in resistance cells, uh, small groups of people. That is, they, they were key to the victory in World War II. Without them, the war would have lasted a lot longer 
than it did. Now, there were many types of cells, resistant cells. Some of them were, were armed, uh, and, uh, and they had armed resistance. Some of them did um, um, aid, uh, food aid, uh, uh, medical aid, uh, many different, many different uh, roles and many, many different types. But overall, they all sought to disrupt the plans of the enemy in order to release people and see the enemy defeated. That was their goal. They also disrupted the complacency of people. They got people to take a side, people who were trying to sit on the fence, people who were trying to get their head down. These resistance movements inspired them and challenged them and encouraged them and, and forced them to get off the fence and take a stand and get involved in what was happening, get involved in the war effort. They caused disruption in order to bring freedom. Now, I believe today, and increasingly in the future, churches are going to be resistance movements and resistance cells standing opposed to the kingdom of darkness. That's God's call. We are to disrupt the enemy, Satan, in order to see people set free and the enemy defeated. Right now at City Temple, we have seven and a half million people around us who need more and more resistant cells, more and more churches to hear about Jesus and receive the gospel of the freedom. Now we are part of this disruptive resistance movement at City Temple. To see God's kingdom advance throughout London and across the world. May we do it with faith and with boldness, all to the glory of God in Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Gracious God, thank you so much for calling us and placing us in your divine, holy resistance movement. You are an amazing God, and we love you, and we praise you, and we worship you. Father, I pray that you would just continue to stir in our hearts and our minds what you are doing in the church, how you are raising up a church that will be a disruptive movement to see Satan's kingdom fall and see thousands and millions transferred from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of your dear son. Redeemed by the blood of Jesus to become together from every language and tribe and people and nation, a kingdom and priest to our God so that we in victory with Jesus will reign on this earth. Lord, we need your Holy Spirit. We need the moving of your Holy Spirit in our hearts and our minds. And we need you to, to point us and direct us, lead us and empower us to be the kingdom movement that you desire us to be to the glory and honor of Jesus. We praise you and honor you in Jesus' name. Amen.